This is Annie Stevens Gleason, Minister for Worship and Incorporation here at the Episcopal Church of the Redeemer. We continue to have conversation around becoming beloved community. The Episcopal Church's long-term commitment to racial healing, reconciliation, and justice. Becoming beloved community represents not so much a set of programs as a journey, a set of interrelated commitments around which Episcopalians may organize our many efforts to respond to racial injustice and grow a community of reconcilers, justice makers, and healers. This episode is a live recording of our interview with Bishop Tom Bridenthal, Bishop of the Diocese of Southern Ohio. Um, I just wanted to welcome Bishop Tom Bridenthal with us today. We are going to do one of our episodes of Becoming Beloved Community podcast with the bishop. Um, so we'll go, we'll go right into those questions. All right. Can you tell us a moment in your life that inspires you to support the Episcopal Church's Becoming Beloved Community initiative? It could be a memory, a childhood, a relationship, um, or a trip you've taken. Okay, um, you may know, uh, some of you will know that I was on the faculty of General Seminary in New York City for about 10 years, uh, professor of Christian ethics. And several years into my time there, um, the then dean, who I did not like very much, I'll just tell you that, decided that we had to have some uh, training in uh, anti-racism and called everyone together, including the uh, the custodians and the, the, all the staff and professors, all the students. And it was a very, very uncomfortable day. Uh, it was, I think, excruciating for the uh, custodial staff that was uh, almost entirely African-American. And they were felt uh, that they didn't, they felt out of place and nobody had done anything to help them feel uh, really welcome. So, um, a lot of the students were really angry that, that this day had backfired in such a terrible way. And my class met the next morning, and uh, you know, as usual, I'm in denial of some things wrong. So I mean, I was trying to, to begin to introduce the topic that was planned for that day, but it didn't take very long before I realized that nobody was talking. And there was a silence that was just, you could cut it with a knife. And uh, if I've learned anything over the years, it's to, it's to shut up. And then eventually, somebody will break the silence, and uh, people will feel that they have the authority to speak. So after a long silence, uh, one of my students who was African-American did begin to speak. And she expressed her, her anger, really, her rage at what, what had occurred. And then there was another white student who said, well, he, he, he didn't think he had any problem with race. And so another black student said, you've got to be kidding. So all we were off and running, there were about 20 people in the classroom. And it became a very uh, profound conversation, um, very honest, very frank, very painful, but also loving. Out of that class came a decision that they, they would encourage the rest of the student body to work with them to produce a Lenten program for the whole community that would meet over lunch. 
and they did that. Uh, and it was an amazing, amazing um, series of conversations, completely student-led. And then when it came to the end of the year, usually at General Seminary, they, the, the graduating class would write a gift to the seminary. I don't even know if I can say this without crying. But they had, they had um, asked uh, an iconographer to, uh, to you don't paint icons, you write them, okay? So they had asked him to write an, uh, an icon of Alexander uh, Crummel, who was an African-American who was denied admission to General Seminary in the 1840s. Uh, and who ended up being a missionary to Liberia, um, a very great man, and he's one of the saints in our calendar. The icon writer didn't just do a picture of Alexander Crummel. At the top, he included um, a min miniature of the traditional icon of hospitality, which is an icon of but the, the three angels who visit Abraham and Sarah. And this, uh, um, this icon was placed in the chapel of the Good Shepherd and dedicated uh, uh, at, at the baccalaureate that year. Part of what changed my life through this entire thing, I'm going on too long here, is I, re I realized something that I had not ever realized before, that not only was I a person of privilege, but my children were, were people of privilege. We were lived in Chelsea, which in those days was still kind of funky, um, but they're, you know, they're both blonde and blue-eyed, and they're very cute. And the, the, I, it just hit me like a ton of bricks, the special uh, attention that, that they got from all the grocery store owners and the various shops in the area, um, even though we were just a block away from the projects, which were almost entirely uh, occupied by people of color. That was a very painful thing for me to realize. So that's changed, I think that changed my life. Thank you, thank you for that. As we've begun our Becoming Beloved community here, our work here at Redeemer, we've really resonated with um, Michael Curry's language that the Becoming Beloved community initiative is a journey, not a program. We recognized pretty quickly that racism is not going to be solved in our five-part Lenten series. Um, and we are ready to make the long-term commitment to this ongoing journey. Could you share your perspective as why it's important? I'm gonna say that again. Can you share your perspective on why it's important that this work be an ongoing journey? And specifically, how our diocese is prepared to support that journey? I am the chair of the House of Bishops Theology Committee, which is made up of eight theologically-minded bishops and seven academic theologians, seminary professors. It's a great group. And um, a couple of years ago, that group decided that its, its next work should be beloved community. And it's been exciting to see how ethicists and theologians and liturgists and historians of, of the church have approached this rich and complex uh, topic in, in so many different ways. But they decided that uh, this would probably need to be a, uh, a work that would last in, into the foresee foreseeable future. Because the more, you, the more you get into it, the more you realize that it, um, it, 
it strikes at the heart of the uh, of the historical sin of this country, which is, uh, we're all aware of, but it's very very hard to to get one's uh, to get one's mind and heart around it. And it also, but and this is the a more positive thing to say, it also really opens up uh, what Jesus' teaching is all about, that, that, and what the Bible is all about, that we are, we are created by God for community. We're hardwired for it. We abuse it all the time, and we can abuse it easily because we are so connected to each other that it's easy for us to figure out how to hurt each other. Some of you have heard me say, you know, sometimes you can just lift your eyebrow and it ruins somebody's day. So we are very vulnerable, woundable. But the other side of that coin is that we're, we are made for community. Now, uh, the person who actually coined the term uh, beloved community is, um, was Josiah Royce, who was a pretty important American philosopher who lived near the end of the 19th century and I think into 1915, 1916. And uh, he was convinced that, uh, that first of all, um, we, we were made to love community. That's, so that's where the term beloved community came from. That when we, we, when we really experience uh, kindliness and generosity and forgiveness and even lively argumentation and disagreement, then we fall in love with that and we naturally honor it as long as we don't feel that we have to be afraid of it. He also was a good Presbyterian and he said that community is also beloved because it's beloved by God. God loves us being in community with one another. God loves what we're doing right now. So um, I think that the, the presiding bishop has been uh, really brilliant in offering this invitation to the Episcopal Church to really explore beloved community without too many rules attached. Uh, and part of, part of that exploration is learning how to just even to talk honestly about our own experience of privilege or non-privilege and how to uh, be able to be open with one another in a tr in a trusting way. Uh, there was something else I was going to say, but it just went out the window. Uh, uh, um, yes, one, the, this was the other thing. Michael Curry has been um, for a long time dissatisfied with the sort of anti-racism programs in our church. He thinks that. It's, it's even the term is too negative. That it's not that we have to somehow steal ourselves to prevent ourselves from being racist. We, we need to take the opportunity of, that is provided for us because of our difference from one another. Uh, to, to take that opportunity to be, learn how to celebrate the fact that we're not all the same and that, that God loves that. Thank you. Um, also here at Redeemer, alongside our Becoming Beloved community work, um, we're looking at living into our vision statement. Um, I'm going to read that again. A vision for a worshiping community that knows Jesus and grows in love, a community united in relationships of holy connection and communion, 
a community growing with people of every age, race, gender, sexual orientation, socioeconomic situation, and political persuasion. A community inspired by our understanding of why we are Christian, why we are Episcopalian, why Redeemer matters to us. A community sent into the world, rooted and grounded in love, to serve all people with humility, compassion, and faithfulness. Um, examining this for me, there's clearly an intersection of LGBTQ plus folks and living into beloved community. Um, I know that you worked on the commission for creating the same-sex marriage rights. Um, what was your experience on that commission and what did you learn from being involved? You mean the, the, um, the National Commission? Yes. Let me back up a little okay, bit. Beyond. Perfect. All right. Perfect. So um, back to General Seminary and the dean I didn't like very much. <laughs> uh, shortly into my, in, within the first year of our of Margaret's and my uh, living at General, um, the professor of, of a New Testament, um, who, who is a lesbian, um, invited her partner to come and live with her on, on campus in faculty housing. It turned out that it was, a, it was against policy to allow that to happen. So when the dean arrived, he said to me, well, you're the ethicist here. Uh, why don't you organize a, a committee <laughs> to figure this out? Because the problem was that, that Deirdre and, and her partner had um, made a complaint to the New York City Human Rights Commission. So that was a pretty serious deal, right? And this was beginning to be in the news a lot. So he said, you fix it. <laughs> and what we did was bring together um, all the different constituencies of the seminary, students, faculty, trustees, um, local pastors, and tried to be really careful to make sure that it wasn't stacked one way or the other, that, that there could be a genuine disagreement. And there was genuine disagreement. But um, what, what, what turned out to happen was that even though there was tremendous divide over the question of human sexuality, there was agreement around the issue of justice. And we were able to come to the conclusion that uh, not providing uh, an equal access to housing on the campus of General Seminary was simply unjust because it's New York City, which is extremely expensive to live in. So that we, we presented that report to, to the trustees and they changed the policy. Okay. However, in, the, in that whole process, I became really fascinated by the fact that it was a very residential seminary. It, it, it was sort of accidentally residential because nobody else could afford to live anywhere else. But the fact that we all live there together, uh, it's changed a lot since then. But when we were there, it, it was an entire city block in, in Manhattan and, it, and very beautiful and children could roll out of their apartments and play. It was like growing up in the middle of Manhattan as if it was Topeka, Kansas or something. And uh, I thought, wh how, does this, how does the fact that we are accidentally residential uh, shape us? Uh, because th th there were so many challenges. Uh, just to, to mention one of them, 
I had to learn how to be a parent along with the parents of my students. So there are all kinds of authority and, and um, power um, disparities that had to be named and worked through, which I think in the long run is what made this other thing possible, all right? So uh, to make a long story short, I, I decided to, um, to try to write a book to explore what is life together for Christians? How does that fit into the Christian tradition? And I called it um, Christian householding. Uh, and I, I was just trying to analyze the, the, the differing, the various virtues that seem to comprise uh, the, the practice of householding within the context of Christian faith. And that led me, of course, to a consideration of same-sex unions. Once I had identified what I took to be the 10 or so virtues that really make for healthy sanctification in the context of householding, and I included single life in this as well, um, I had to ask the question, uh, can same gender, uh, at that time I would have said partnerships, can, can they be uh, um, a location for sanctification, for becoming holy? And my answer to that question was yes. I mean, that's really kind of how I got there. I wasn't sure, right? That's how I got there. Uh, and when I was in the, ended up in the process for the election of a bishop here, I, I was sure that that book would f save me from being elected. <laughs> Because everybody else that was in the process was being asked at the focus groups, you know, what's your, where are you on same-sex marriage? And they would all hem and haw. And all I could say was, well, I wrote a book. <laughs> so it, it um, I don't, I still don't know how it, how it happened that that didn't save me because Ohio is a pretty conservative place, actually. But but what somebody said to me was, Ohioans are a very respectful people. They care about um, uh, helping people, and whoever they are, and they and and they care about people's rights to live the life they're trying to live this best they can. Nevertheless, um, as a diocese, we have uh, had quite a journey since then. Um, I, I remember um, the general convention. I think in in 2012. Um, I realized on the plane back that by accident, the Episcopal Church had really said same-sex unions are okay. I mean, they had passed two resolutions that if you put them together, that's, that was what it came to. And I had always said here in this diocese, even though I think that the, the church should bless same-gender unions, I will n never allow that to happen here until the church as a whole, until the Episcopal Church decides to do that. We're not going to be a maverick diocese. So I was on the plane coming back. We, all the way, you know, we were in Southern California, so it was a long trip. And I thought, oh, no. Now I have to do something. <laughs> and I got, got together a wonderful task group that really worked very hard on this issue. And, um, and it also was full of, you know, it had people that were in favor of this and people that were not in favor of it. But uh, I, eventually I got up at our diocesan convention in November and said, um, I would like to, as of April the 1st, I would like us to be 
uh, honoring the, the, the blessing of same-gender unions. And that was the scariest moment for me here ever. Um, I, I, I thought it, it was just going to be a disaster. But do you know there was a spontaneous um, standing ovation? And because I think people, again, were still working through their position with regard to this. But I think people felt that there, there, there was integrity to this. Now, you asked about the National Commission. I guess it was the um, Standing Commission on, li on Liturgy and Music, is that right? Um, which was really, f <laughs> really fun to be on. You know, at General Convention, um, there are usually about 15 to 20 legislative committees that that kind of deal with resolutions about, uh, around different issues. And I used, I used to, and they usually start meeting at six or seven in the morning, which for me was not easy. But I would be rushing in a blur to get to whatever com committee I was on and passing the room where liturgy and music was meeting. <laughs> and they would always be singing. They start, would start all their meetings by singing. And I thought, why can't I be on that committee? <laughs> <laughs> so finally, I ended up on it, and it I just enjoyed it so much, uh, just really rich work, but, um, and, and then I was on a kind of offshoot of that committee that met throughout the year, kind of trying to struggle with what should liturgies around same gender um, marriage look like, uh, and um, I don't know what you want me to say about that. Did you learn anything in that, those meetings or that time, going deeper into that? Yeah, I think, I think that um, I, I learned that we have a lot of work just to understand um, tr traditional marriage better. We all do. Um, and how can the church as a whole really support people who are struggling to live lives of faithfulness in marriage to one another in a, in a culture which doesn't really help very much with that anymore. Um, and I also learned that in, in a way, um, he hearing the testimony of, of many gay and lesbian people about their own lives and their own partnerships um, was really inspiring because I think that they did not do not take um, the blessing and support of the church and the life of faithfulness in any way for granted and are able to be a, a real, um, I think, example for the rest of us. This is the last question. Um, with that, do you see a way forward um, to work towards inclusion in our language as a church and the language of our liturgies? Well, I don't like the word inclusion. But the Thank you for saying that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the reason I don't like it is because um, if you look at what the word literally means, it means letting people into a closed circle. And it's very easy for us to confuse hospitality with you know, letting, uh, um, being so generous as to allow people to be near us. Whereas, in, in fact, the church needs to be 
uh, utterly expansive, and it's not so much a question of us letting people in. It's a question of letting the Holy Spirit hurl us out and to bring us into deeper and deeper proximity with the stranger and with difference. So I think that with that in mind, um, for me, the issue, it really is not about a gender-specific language. I think we can, we can talk about a God in all kinds of different ways. Um, and, and we need to be able to name our, name our differences and rejoice in them and not um, continue to worry so much about the political correctness of our language. Uh, having said that, um, there is a there's there's a sort of movement afoot in the Episcopal Church, a kind of hunger for a um, for a new prayer book. There's a lot of fear about that as well, but there is hunger for uh, f for the exploration of new and different or really ancient and forgotten um, uh, forms of worship. I think this is particularly true around in the emerging church, um, in what we tend to call fresh expressions in this diocese. Um, uh, hunger among young people to be able to recover uh, ancient practices of meditation, fascination with icons, music of, of all sorts. And I, I think what we would tend to say increasingly is if we're going to insist on the word inclusion, it, it should mean uh, music from around the world, liturgies from around the world, uh, and doing the hard work to see the, um, the, the variety of Ethnicity, ethnicities and, uh, and, and races that make up the Episcopal Church itself. So, you know, how do we, how do we uh, achieve a prayer book that honors the Navajo, for instance, or the Lakota? How do we do that? We don't really know how to do that yet. Uh, uh, to what extent are we w willing to uh, engage more deeply with Christian traditions that are really different from ours. I mean, uh, as, I, as I always say to the people I'm about to confirm, part of, part of saying yes to your baptism is saying yes to all kinds of different Christians. And it's very easy for us, I, I, I would include myself in this, it's easy for us Episcopalians to be a little arrogant about our tradition because it's so beautiful and lovely and smart and all that stuff. But, <laughs> but you know, if that goes if that goes hand in hand with downplaying or making fun of evangelicals or Pentecostals, uh, that's not good because those traditions also bring precious things to the to the body of Christ. Uh, and this is the last thing I'll say. Uh, I think that uh, Episcopalians and Lutherans, all the liturgical types, Roman Catholics, um, are terrified of witness. We don't know how to do it. We feel uncomfortable do it, doing it. Um, by the same token, the evangelical community, which is terribly diverse itself, 
they have lots of arguments with each other. The evangelical community is not afraid to witness, but it's fascinated with and terrified by liturgy. So I think the Holy Spirit is doing something here. Evangelicals are, you know, that I ended up in a, in a clergy group in Ashland, Oregon years ago that was, was evangelical. Long story how that happened. But I learned that most of them sort of had a book of common prayer under their pillow. <laughs> Quite secretly, all right? They loved the book of common prayer because, of, because it, it was such a testament to the body of Christ and to the commonality of our worship and such a connection to, to the ancient church. Uh, um, so I think that th this is a real hunger within the evangelical community. And I think there's a real hunger in our community to learn how to talk about Jesus. And part of, the, I, a part of what the work is going to be about heading towards a new prayer book uh, or becoming a beloved community is that we begin, first of all, to learn how to talk to each other so that we can witness to others. And that we also are open and welcoming to people that may be a lot more conservative than we are, who, who, who maybe re refuse to bless same-sex couples. How can we continue to be in conversation with them? Thank you. <laughs> um, thank you all uh, for being here. And again, thank you, Bishop, for you're, your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah. Join us in our conversations here as we continue our commitment to becoming beloved community at the Episcopal Church of the Redeemer in the Queen of the Midwest, Cincinnati, Ohio.